Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Balkwell's Books. Uh, my name is Balkwell, I am your host, uh, today's host of Balkwell's Books, and today's book is Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift, first published in the year 1726. Now, Gulliver's Travels is a satirical work, as you might expect, from Jonathan Swift, and is written in the style, sort of as a parody, of the adventure story. And this was a very popular uh, genre of literature for many years, or many decades, centuries, in fact. But it is a somewhat fleeting genre, as many, you know, popular genres are. Much of the work in this genre has not survived the test of time. And although there were many, many works uh, with many, many readers, uh, contemporary readers, uh, not so many have survived. And the ones that have survived, of course, are going to be the exceptional works, the works that speak uh, more broadly, more universally, that don't tie themselves so specifically to the specific topic, the specific area that they are exploring. You know, if your book is just about an island that you went to, people who want to learn about that island may read it, but the general reader and the reader hundreds of years later may not have much, uh, may not get much out of it. So these stories that have survived We've talked about a couple of them on previous episodes. Uh, Robinson Crusoe is a great example. Um, sort of the prototypical uh, self-sufficient deserted island sort of uh, novel. I've never done an episode about it, but I've, I'm sure I've mentioned it in, in several previous episodes. And Robinson Crusoe, what makes it interesting is that it is such an embodiment of that um, enlightenment philosophy that idea of self-sufficiency, the power of European technology, um, the scientific method, etc., etc. And it really is such a document uh, of the time. It really elaborates so much of the feeling of the time through the story it tells and, and such forth. We've also talked briefly about um, Herman Melville, his works Typee, uh, Omu and and Marty. Now, Taipei and Omu are more of the, you know, somewhat generic uh, version of this story. Obviously, I think Melville's a genius, so I think those novels uh, work because he's such an excellent writer. But really, they'd probably be lost to time if uh, there hadn't been this sort of revival of his works due to things like Moby Dick. Uh, works like Billy Budd, Sailor, Bartleby, etc., etc. Marty, on the other hand, is probably the most similar to book to Gulliver's Travels that we've covered thus far. It's a fantastical book, and it's not about a real place. It uh, uses that adventure story framework to play with different philosophical or political ideas to really let Melville's imagination run wild and uh, just talk about a whole a wide variety of topics without having to connect them necessarily to to real world 
figures or real world uh, uh, places. So Gulliver's Travels works as that sort of parody of the adventure story. And what makes Gulliver's Travels still relevant today, uh, it's a variety of things. And we'll cover all of them in, in this episode. That's the goal here. But first, I think we should talk a little bit about Gulliver as a character. Because what pulls you through this novel, you know, what keeps you entertained through this novel is, of course, the the funny ideas and the funny situations. But the character of Gulliver is essential because you really couldn't think of a better person to put into these situations to send to these islands than a man like Gulliver. And I think the main reason for this is he's a somewhat ridiculous guy from the beginning. He's just a ridiculous man. And the reason is he, he has some pomp, you know, and he has dignity. And his dignity might not be well-placed all the time, but he has this this undying pride in being a human and in being an Englishman. And what's funny here is that, of course, Gulliver is placed in uh, a variety of very non-dignified situations. Sometimes he's a, he's a tiny man. Sometimes he's a, a very big man. Uh, sometimes he's being treated like an animal, you know, or like a mountain. <laughs> he, he's put in these situations um, where he does not have control where he is the outsider. He has to learn the language. He has to learn the culture. And everyone else there looks at him, you know, like he's just some crazy guy. It's a complete weirdo who has no idea what he's doing. Basically like a baby, you know, learning his first words. Um, someone that doesn't really belong in the world because he doesn't fit into the cultures he's going to. However, throughout all this, well, he doesn't project... to a lot of pride in his interactions, we can tell uh, from his narration that he does have this pride. And one of the sort of ironic aspects of this pride is his patriotism as an Englishman. Because while he is willing to criticize all the vices of European culture, of uh, European governments, of all these societies, he doesn't want to touch on the English. And he refuses to speak bad about his mother country. However, by continually uh, pressing this point of not wanting to speak bad about his mother country, it, it sort of reveals something in itself. The, the omission there um, reveals a lot about the fact that most of what he's saying applies just as much, if not more so, to the English. Throughout the book, Gulliver goes to these different islands, and at the end of each one, he comes back with a different perspective on humanity. So first, he goes to an island where everybody is about four inches tall. And by viewing these people who are so tiny, um, you sort of get a sense of the ridiculousness of their pride, uh, of their dignity. They have this culture that they think is, is so important and, and, you know, this the center of the world, when really it's this tiny island, you know, what, like 100 yards by 100 yards, 
they have no idea what's going on uh, in the rest of the world. They they don't know anyone except the people you know across a little channel from them. But even with these people, the the this other kingdom nearby, they're at constant war, and they're at war for these like completely stupid you know ridiculous reasons that that have basically no meaning to anybody except them. When Gulliver leaves this place, he ends up washing uh, ashore on an island of giants. And so now Gulliver is the equivalent of these four-inch uh, people relative to the, to the new place. And of course, now all the ridiculousness that was exclusive, uh, at least in, in the story, that was exclusive to these four-inch men that can now apply to Gulliver as well. And these giants look at him like, who do you think you are, man? You're this little dude, and you're the only little dude in the world. Everyone else is normal-sized, as far as we're concerned. Um, of course we're not going to treat you like you're an actual person, you know? We know, as readers, we recognize Gulliver as an actual person, um, as a part of our culture, and we think our culture is quite important. We think our problems are real, uh, they're meaningful to us, um, and so we we almost start to um, sympathize, of course, with those little the little men from from before. Uh, now we realize that the the giants almost seem ridiculous in their inability to recognize Gulliver as a an actual person. Um, and thus our inability to recognize these four-inch tall people earlier is, is sort of ridiculed, satirized in that way. And when Gulliver finally escapes from the big island, the island of big people, and meets normal-sized human beings again, uh, he thinks they're tiny and he's like his, his brain is totally blown, you know? All these things that are actually the proper size for him. Uh, he, he's just not used to it. And there's this adjustment period, you know. To And it, it's kind of funny, like, the, the detail and the, the amount of thought that Jonathan Swift actually puts into Gulliver's situations here is quite hilarious because he really does think it through to kind of the logical extreme. You know, it's one thing, okay, there's a bunch of big people, you know, you might get stepped on them, you know, whatever. But all these tiny problems, um, how does Gulliver get clothing? You know, where does he go to the bathroom? What does he eat? Like, all these sort of day-to-day things that Gulliver needs to do, Jonathan Swift is willing to explore and that's part of the comedy of the book is that it's all played straight you know Gulliver is not going there and being like this is so ridiculous and crazy he's saying wow look at this place you know I guess I gotta eat and use the bathroom now uh and he's sort of reporting it very matter-of-factly of of what is what is there he's taking it seriously he's he's playing uh in the genre, you know. As we get to the sort of second half of the novel, the sort of social commentary, the, the satire present, uh, becomes much more incisive and much more pronounced. These first two uh, islands 
they're a little ridiculous. It's a bit of a comedy, and while there is a little bit going on in terms of how we look at humanity at the end of it, um, it's quite light. In this second half, Gulliver uh, ends up on an island called Laputa. Laputa? Laputa? And this is a an island where the king lives on a big floating sort of island, I guess. Uh, he's sort of floating around, and all the government is on this little island, and they float around and watch over everybody down there and make sure they're they're doing what they like. And if everyone, if anyone down there sort of tries to rebel or, or disagrees with them, they sort of drop the island on them and, and crush them down, right? So you've got, you know, literally the elites are floating in the sky, looking down from their ivory tower, and they have no practical sense at all. These people, you know, they're scholarly, they're astronomers, they love looking at the sky, and they're so absent-minded that they need servants to walk around with them and slap them in the face when uh, to get them to pay attention to what's right in front of them. Otherwise, they'll just drift off, uh, you know, lose track of a conversation because of all the, you know, daydreaming they're doing. Um, the result of having an elite uh, that act in such a way is that everything on this sort of ground floor, you know, not on the giant, the floating island, is in complete disarray. The people up there have these, you know, ideas about how things should go, have these theories, but they don't have the practical knowledge, and um, so all their all their rules, all their laws that they make create complete uh, chaos. Um, people don't know how to grow food, they can't produce goods, the whole society is falling apart, and um, everybody down there sort of looks up to these uh, higher people, these higher-minded uh, people, um, and so they want to live like them, and everything goes to heck. Uh, we, we also have in this area the, this academy of people known as projectors. Now, projectors is basically the sort of 18th century term for what we would now call entrepreneurs. So projectors were people who just came up with projects, with big plans, and got a bunch of people with money to fund them and then tried to do it. So this, you know, like with entrepreneurs nowadays, this could be a piece of technology, this could be a, a trade idea, like trying to make contacts with another country and, and do some sort of trade and, and, and things like this. And these projectors in the story are quite similar to the modern sort of tech bro entrepreneur who are always trying to disrupt uh, with new technology. And they're saying, well, we've got this industry that does this, this, and this. So let's disrupt it and, you know, do it this other brand new way that has nothing to do with the way it's been done now. And usually what they do is they disrupt people by just getting in their way, making their life uh, more complicated, uh, introducing problems that either were already fixed or, you know, new problems that no one foresaw, or at least they didn't foresee. Other people probably could have foreseen them. And, and they're basically reinventing um, things that work fine or things that could have been tweaked 
rather than completely, you know, disrupted. Public transit, for example, taxis, hotels, stuff like this, you know. In the story, there's an example of a of a of a man who had a a water mill on his property. And the water mill, you know, it does what a water mill does. The water goes through it, it, you know, powers the wheel, makes the grain or, you know, whatever. And they come in and say, yeah, you've got this water mill, but what if we made a different water mill? We're going to build it way over here on a mountain. And we've got this brand new technology for water mills and it's going to be awesome. So they take apart his water mill. They start on the new one. They realize halfway through it's not really going to work, and then they just leave. And now the guy doesn't have any water bill. Um, so we can all sort of uh, imagine situations in the current world uh, that somewhat resemble uh, what's going on there. Later on, we get the world of the Hohenhms, which are a, uh, a society of horses. And these horses have uh, become rational creatures. Um, they are the most intelligent creature on this island, and humans, while they exist on this planet, on this planet, on this island, are, you know, just this species of, uh, uncivilized monkey people. They, uh, they're greedy, they're avaricious, they're violent, they, they can't properly function, they're completely irrational, they can't think straight. And this final island sort of breaks Gulliver's mind, essentially. Um, all this time, he's been seeing these different vices of humanity. He's been seeing the ridiculousness of the way they conduct themselves relative to their actual situation. Um, the way, you know, they treat their own virtues, imagined or otherwise, and their vices... Um, with the Yahoos, which is the name of this sort of human-like species, um, they're so degraded, they're so inhuman while also being human, they're so unappealing that, that Gulliver wishes to um, differentiate himself from them however possible. But no matter how much he tries, and no matter how much he tries to explain to the Hohenhums, um, the society of humanity that exists outside of this island and, you know, in our world, the Hohenhums can't see him as anything other than a Yahoo. And they can't understand our society to be particularly different than the way the Yahoos act. You know, they're, they're irrationally greedy. Um, they're they're violent and all this stuff and these are um, you know many of the criticisms that Jonathan Swift is um, implicitly making of his own society. So when Gulliver finally does leave the land of the Hohenhums and returns home, uh, he has taken on that uh, viewpoint of the Hohenhums and he can't see humans as anything more than yahoos. He can't look people in the eye. He can't be around his children. He won't talk to his wife. And uh, he's sort of completely become isolated from the rest of humanity <clears throat> because of 
his experience with these Hohenhms who are virtuous, purely virtuous. They don't even know how to lie. They don't know how to um, conduct themselves with deceit. They don't know violence or war or any of this. Um, and when he gets home, the only people he wants to talk to are his horses, who, of course, in the real world can't talk back. Now, despite this um, very negative uh, ending, Gulliver's Travels does not feel quite as mean-spirited uh, as maybe uh, it would seem. Uh, it's a very funny book. It's quite a light-hearted book. And um, its criticism, while somewhat vicious, you know, somewhat incisive, compared to someone like Voltaire, who I find much more difficult to read because... Voltaire, it always feels like he's sitting up here looking down on everyone else, and he has no sympathy for for anyone, really. He just goes out on the street like, I don't like you, I don't like you, I don't like that, I don't like this. I could do it, you know, so much better. I'm Voltaire, you're all so ridiculous. With, with Gulliver, with, or with, well, with Gulliver's travels, Gulliver is a bit of an everyman. You know, he has his dignity, but he's just some guy, you know, and he doesn't really... Um, pretend to be any better than, than anyone else that he's criticizing. He recognizes himself as a Yahoo. You know, he understands that all the criticisms being levied against human society are true of him as well. So we get that sort of common common sympathy, this, this everyman uh, character, not someone looking down on us from above. Uh, another aspect is that most of the criticisms uh, are directed at the government, uh, the aristocracy, the nobles, the elites, and it's particular to the way society is run, the way it's organized. It's not saying humanity is completely useless, completely um, irredeemable. There's this sense that we could change if the people in power were willing to use their power to make life better for people instead of actively making it worse for everyone um, except themselves, and in so doing, often making life worse for themselves at the same time. If they were willing to actually cooperate with the rest of humanity, uh, then we could have a much more just, uh, peaceful, uh, nice society like the Hohenhums have. There's nothing the Hohenhums have that we could not attain if we were able um, to have people in power who could control their vices and who could actually implement the virtues that they know to be virtues. They understand what is and isn't moral, um, but they don't put it into practice. And this is the criticism uh, in Gulliver's Travels. And this is why at the end of the book, you don't get this sense um, that you've been talked down to, that you have personally been, you know, criticized or accused of something. But instead, this idea that um, we are all in this together. We, we do all sh share, um, to a certain extent, these virtues and these vices, that uh, as a human being, there there are traits that we must overcome if we want to live a life that is, you know, better for, for everyone. So 
that's Gulliver's Travels. You know, I think it's it's quite a quite a nice book. It, it's very fun. It's it's quite funny. It's a breezy read, and um, it doesn't have some of these problems that I think come through uh, in a lot of other satirical works. Gulliver's Travels. There you go. Uh, thanks for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed uh, this episode. Um, if you like the show, you can subscribe to it as it's a podcast. You can subscribe to it in all the podcast places. You can find it on YouTube as well, the channel Balkwell. Um, you can visit my website, balkwell.online. The show is hosted there, and I also post uh, nonfiction essays there every two weeks. You can check out my novel, Only in Dreams, available on Amazon. I just published that uh, the other month. So take a look at that as well. Thank you for listening. Also, tell a friend about the show. If you think you have a friend who you want to tell about the show, and rate and and review it on places where you can do that. Thank you. Goodbye.